1: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
2: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 55 of Archaeoanimals, the show about zoo archaeology with me, Simona Falanga
1: and... I'm Alex
2: Fitzpatrick. And in this episode, we're going to talk about mice and rats, the zoo archaeology of very small mammals. And now, on with the show. Hi again, everyone. On today's episode, we're looking at yet another group of terrifying animals for zoo archaeologists that are just looking to have a nice and easy time doing an animal bone report. But the very dreaded, very small mammals. Bonus points for the amount of very you can shove in a sentence. But what do we actually mean by very small mammals? It depends who you ask, is the answer. So normally, as a archaeologist, if you can't identify an animal to species, you tend to assign it to a size category to just, you know, give an indicator of size. So, for example, say you get a fragment of a shaft of something, you know, could be a horse, could be a cow. More often than not, that will go down as uh, unidentified large mammal. Which brings us to the question, what does a, a very small mammal entail? This, in a way, can be subjective, because, uh, you know, what is small? For instance, the North Atlantic Biocultural Organization's recording system defines very small terrestrial mammals as anything mouse or full sized Historic England, on the other hand, in their animal bone guide, uh, use the terminology microfauna, uh, which refers to All small vertebrates, which will include reptiles, amphibians, and all small mammals—the sort of squirrel-sized and smaller—as well as fish and bird. So, now for the purpose of this episode, by "very small mammal," Alex and I will henceforth mean anything rat-sized or smaller.
1: Yeah. So it's that weird problem, and I think zooarchaeologists have been having this kind of discussion for a pretty long time now, but. There's not really a standardization in zooarchaeology, particularly for things like this. So I have mainly worked in the North Atlantic and North Atlantic sites. So we usually use Nabone. So for me, you know, I've always used STM, so small terrestrial mammals, VSTM, very small terrestrial mammals. That's always been kind of how I've approached it. But obviously, especially nowadays, I've worked with lots of other zooarchaeologists and met a lot of other zooarchaeologists and... You know everyone kind of uses their own thing i mean it's never like too drastically different but if you don't really know the kind of context and you read something that says again like very small terrestrial mammal you know that could be a squirrel that could be a vole it, it really depends i mean simona what's your kind of experience with stuff like this
2: yeah, I mean it does tend to be quite variable, but I think it's not the end of the world, because normally sort of when you do have size identifiers or size categories is something you normally include in your methodology anyway. Yeah. So hopefully you should get a, a key of some description if you're reading a report of what the author actually means by sort of small mammal, large mammal. Um Tristan has a question.
3: What happens if the the size isn't what you expect? Uh, what do you do with rodents of unusual size?
1: Ugh, I knew this was going to happen.
3: <laughs> Might as well get it way rid of at the start of the episode, okay? I just want to know about rodents of unusual size.
2: <laughs> Define unusual size.
3: Unusual.
1: They're Not
2: unusual.
3: Like,
1: in Princess Bride, they're like dog sized, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, no, they are. They're really big. They're kind of like capybara size, I would yeah. say. Yeah. But that, that, this highlights the issues, doesn't it? Like, you say dog size, I say capybara size. It's sometimes difficult to find a correct standard. I don't think there is a standard rat, is there?
1: Well, yeah, I guess that's kind of it. Obviously, we do have somewhat biometrical standards. There's... Ways of which, you know, you can do measurements to kind of help with identification of things. But that's really kind of for the nitty gritty, I feel like. And even then, you know, you always work with a bit of error on both sides. It's I mean, yeah, there's there's reasons why we don't necessarily have like massive standardization because there's obviously variances. But on the other hand, you know, it might be nice to have some kind of standardization. It's, I guess, it's the age-old debate in zooarchaeology that we don't really talk about because it's kind of boring. It's all about numbers and stuff, and who cares?
2: To be fair, I guess a capybara, I'll probably put it safely in the medium-sized mammals.
1: Yeah, I guess. Anyway, to get back on on track, we're talking about anything rat size or smaller in this episode. And why are they important? Why should we care about these teeny tiny little animals that frankly give us more discomfort than comfort as archaeologists? Because the bones are very tiny and very annoying at times. Well, they can be indicative of environment. They are often representative of commensal species. For example, they live among humans in a largely opportunistic manner, like eating their grain stores, but they're not entirely reliant on human activity to survive. So that that teaches us a lot about the human activity that may have been happening at this particular site. And it sheds light on introductions. We've discussed in earlier episodes how several commensal rodents have accidentally been introduced to places over time. So they're pretty big, transitionary species almost. They seem to come and go with pretty big. Uh, Events in history, whether that's you know a settlement being created or a migration happening, you know, they're 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 incredibly important indicator species. So, uh well, because Alex and myself
2: mainly deal with British zoo archaeology, what sort of very small mammals do we find in Britain? Arguably, you know, the mostly mice, rats, voles, and then a variety of other like small insectivores. In terms of mice, uh, Britain has four different species. We have the wood-slash-field so mouse, Apodemus sylvaticus, the house mouse, Mus musculus, the harvest mouse, Micromis minutus, and the yellow-necked mouse, Apodemus flavicollis. Although, in all fairness really, wood mouse and house mouse is most of what you'll be finding archaeologically. As for rats, Britain is home to two species. So you have the brown-slash-common rat, Rattus Norvegicus, which I believe is the latest addition to Britain, I think came around the 1800s or 18th century. Yeah, mainly like on ships, but, you know, like as far as just the introduction of rats in general is concerned, it tends to be a bit of a unknown oh moment. And that was definitely the case for the brown rat. And the black rat, Rattus Ratus. Ratus. In Terms of voles, uh, we have again three species. So it's, you can imagine, you know, this is all a, a delight to look at from like a, under archaeological conditions. The native species of vole are the bank vole Myodes glareolus, the field vole Microtus agrestis, and the water vole Arvicola amphibius. I wonder why it's called that.
1: And, of course, it's not just about the mice, the rats, and the voles. There are other small insectivore, a.k.a. insect-eating mammals, like shrews, of which there are three native to mainland Britain. So you have the common shrew, Sorex araneus, the pygmy shrew, Sorex minutus, and the water shrew, fodiens. And I guess technically we could probably include hedgehogs. We might be pushing it a bit, but... Uh, it,
2: it's small enough. I'd put that as a very small mammal. Elinachios pails,
1: by the way. Yeah, they're, they're pretty small. And, you know, frankly, when else are we going to be able to talk about them on this podcast? Unless we do a whole hedgehog episode, which, again, you know, if people want it, we, we can do it. <laughs> But yeah, I think that's a a pretty good list of examples here in Britain. But of course, there are many, many other mammalian species out there that can be considered very small mammals. Obviously, it's just Britain, we have um, not really a lack of diversity, but in comparison to other places, obviously, a bit wanting for (laughs) small species.
2: Or larger species, really. Just species.
1: Yeah, I guess. I mean... So the other thing is, obviously, I was going to ask, you know, what is your experience with these tiny little creatures zooarchaeologically or archaeologically? They're annoying. <laughs> <laughs> um, get it well, out. Just get it all out. <laughs> Look,
2: I think from an osteological point of view, like, um, to be fair, of course, it's not something you'll be able to find hand excavating on site I mean like you'd have to be like with your face in the ground for quite some time so it's something that you're probably more likely to recover through environmental soil samples but it's just one of those things like that they can like preserve well enough but in terms of like anatomy like comparing the anatomy between say the several like different species of mouse and fall, it can be like incredibly difficult to identify even sort of complete elements to species. I find more often than not, unless you have something like jaws or maxillas or a pelvis, it's tricky.
1: Yeah, because obviously the maxillas and the mandibles they are pretty, you know, characteristic of what you think of like a rodent or something. But they do get small. I mean, I think realistically, you're, you're quite lucky if you're getting a lot in, you know, a soil sample or something even i think people kind of noticing it in the field it really depends and yeah it's 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 a bit tricky i think i've only really like once or twice maybe it's very few for sure and obviously you know it was also dependent on the kind of sites you're working on although i will say shockingly small amount of rodents for someone who has worked in say cave sites and things like that which obviously might speak for other kind of differences and things happening at those sites but yeah although i will say my, i have experienced uh, voles because there's the orkney vole which i think we might talk about a bit later on this episode and when I worked in the Orkneys, they were very famous for just kind of always being around and you always had to be kind of careful, not when it came to excavating per se, but mostly when it came to setting up the camp, you know, for the site, uh, we had, we'd have um, these big tents because it obviously poured all the time on site and we needed a place to put our stuff to kind of just unwind, have lunch without getting soaking wet. And when you would put those up and obviously push the poles down, you had to make sure you weren't, you know, accidentally gate-crashing a vole house, per se. So there were some unfortunate accidents, I feel like, with voles, but usually we were pretty good at making sure that we didn't disturb them too
3: much.
2: Yeah, like going back sort of from like identification, I think yeah, probably jaws and maxillas are going to be the easiest of telltales, sort of even between sort of the various mouse species. Like if you've got jaws or or a maxilla or something, you should be able to tell the difference between sort of like the various species of mouse. If you get a humorous, I think that's where it gets a little trickier. One thing that like strikes me normal in particular is that with the balls, sort of the not too sure how to describe it, but like the if you look sort of at the occlusal view of the jaw or the maxilla the tooth pattern looks like jagged, or like very how you imagine a rodent to look like. It's not that dissimilar from rabbits either. But in mice, the cusps, so when they're in wear, they look like they're shaped like little love hearts. <laughs> so yeah, in your likely event that you come across a mouse jaw, <laughs> please like, keep an eye out for the love hearts.
1: But yeah, you know, speaking of their their jaws and their teeth. I think realistically, the, the most experience I have with kind of rodents in archaeology or in zoo archaeology is their gnawing. Like I probably write down and observe more like rodent gnawing than I do the actual rodent bones, which obviously makes sense, especially because a lot of the gnawing could potentially be more modern and contemporary. But yeah, uh, otherwise not that much experience with kind of looking at, you know, big volumes of small mammalian bone like that. Which actually
2: reminds so, me one thing that's probably worth mentioning as well, because yes, we did discuss, you know, like that as very small mammals and especially sort of like mice and rats, they can be indicative or, you know, of introductions and the relationship they had alongside humans or if they were in or around a settlement. But of course, what I forgot to mention is that, that it's all provided they're not intrusive. Because I should expect, mice and rats like to burrow. So you do get uh, rodent remains, and indeed the holes that they've left behind basically trashing through archaeology, and the rodent remains are probably not that old at all. They just ended up in your ditch. So there's that, just to make it fun.
1: So yeah, you know, what a wonderful, fun time rodents are in archaeology and we'll take a quick break and when we come back we will talk a bit more about very small mammals not just in britain but around the world
2: And we are back on episode 55 of Archaeoanimals, animals of the Zoo of Very Small Mammals. In the first part, we've discussed of what a very small mammal entails. So I thought we'd take a look at some examples from around the world. And first on our list is the African pygmy mouse, Mus minutoides, which is one of the smallest rodent species in the world. And it's mainly found well, in most parts of Africa, really, with sort of the exception of northern Africa. And it is arguably the textbook definition of very small mammals, as adults usually only grow to about one to three inches long. Now, like many other micro-mammals, the African pygmy mouse is particularly valued amongst biologists and zooarchaeologists alike for their use in reconstructing paleoenvironments but these mice are also particularly useful for understanding the development and spread of pastoralism in Africa.
1: It's, um, have you looked at a picture, Simona, of the African pygmy mouse? Because it is so cute. I, I don't want to. Oh, oh okay.
2: Because <laughs> <laughs> I think I might have a, a cuteness overload and then we'll be unable to talk about any other species.
1: You know what? That's fair. But it's an interesting kind of case study of, you know, we talk a lot in previous episodes and we are talking about in this episode, the kind of importance of these small, very small, sorry, very small mammals for their kind of ability, not really their ability, but their characteristics that are associated with them, that are utilized for a lot of other things in archaeology, you know, environmental reconstruction, things like that, that we talked about in the first part. But obviously, you know, they're still very important in modern day as well, because of those very same characteristics. And I mean, I don't know if we've really talked about applied to archaeology in this show, but I think we might have an episode lined up at some point about it, but applied zooarchaeology is basically the the concept of utilizing zooarchaeology, so past data of animal populations and our understanding of past species interactions and things like that, and applying it to more contemporary Scientific kind of investigations. I think and-
2: we have mentioned it on a fair few occasions. I think it was more as case studies, but how sort of the oh, ways yeah, in yeah, which yeah. zooarchaeology has been applied for conservation, but also I think we did some case studies and discussions with regards to sheep in yes. particular right. and how it's been used, so sort of like for more well, sheep, well not necessarily sheep husbandry, but uh, yeah, sheep husbandry yeah. today. Yeah,
1: yeah, no. At least it's it's coming back to the rate. It's been a while, folks. It's been about episodes. But yeah, just as a refresher then. So that's what applies to archaeology is. And it's nice to kind of see the way those two interact. Moving on, we have the rice field rat.
2: Rattus argentiventer.
1: Now, it's found throughout Southeast Asia, unsurprisingly, among rice fields, where it's Often considered a pest. Now, because it's associated primarily with rice fields, it's particularly useful among other rice field pests for examining the spread of rice farming throughout Asia. So, obviously, the more rice field rats you find at the site, the more. Likely it is that, hey, there may have been rice farming going on, and you can kind of trace that throughout by combining and comparing a lot of the data from various sites across the Asian continent. Now, archaeological excavation in Southeast Asia has also revealed historic instances of rice field rat consumption. Although it doesn't seem to have been a staple of any diet, they still may have been consumed occasionally. So lot of different kind of utilizations for the rice field rats.
2: Um, next up, as promised, is the, the <laughs> humble Orkney vole, Microtus arvalis orcadensis, which is, well, it, it's a vole, everyone, which lives in the Orkney Islands. More specifically, they're a population of the common vole, so Microtus arvalis, I guess because you have the orcadensis at the end, it would classify maybe as a, as a subspecies almost, I don't know whether they differ enough from the common vulture, speciated.
1: Well, they they kind of do because the thing about the Orkney vole is that it's ten percent larger than the common vole. Yeah,
2: that's filed. Because something that you'd expect, you know, if you look like especially like in in the Pleistocene, you do tend to find this trend where sort of the microfauna tends to be a lot bigger on islands and vice versa, but it's not, well, it's probably not the same thing because it's not a change that you expect to happen in such a short amount of time. So, I mean, the like the oldest Orkney Bowl remains uncovered were about 4,600 years old. So, I mean, like, archaeological research has suggested that the Orkney Bowl was introduced by humans sort of during the Neolithic, again, as a bit of an unknown. A moment. So I wouldn't expect that much of a change to happen in such what it's is in the grand
1: scheme of things, such a short amount of time? Yeah, it's so there's a there's a lot of things strange. So obviously they're ten percent larger than the common bowl. And you know the common bowl themselves are strangely absent in the rest of Britain. So You mean the Orkney Bowl? No, I think it's the Common Bowl I thought was actually absent in most of Britain.
2: Oh well, the common the, the commoners in the field bowl. But you, you, yeah, you yeah. do get bowl. Yeah,
1: well, then I cannot read.
2: Because <laughs> <laughs> oh. just yeah, the Orkney bowl is probably just confined to sort of the Orkney Islands, and you don't really find them elsewhere.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's very strange though. That's why I was so confused. It's very, it's a very weird thing. Even without that, this is just me with the scrolls all over again, folks.
2: <laughs> That's okay. You've been replaced by. Um the 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 new to reptiles of britain true yes this
1: is this is true anyway in addition research comparing the orkney vole from other common vole have also shown the way humans are able to influence and change species on a morphological and as well as a evolutionary level so orkney voles are even more different than the common vole brethren Based in their dental characteristics, so as they spread across the the various northern isles, they differ in their their tooth shape. I believe it's very. Very nitty gritty type things that, frankly, if you're not looking for it, I think a lot of zooarchaeologists, especially people like me who kind of just do general zooarchaeology and kind of deal with a lot of different species, would definitely not pick up. But it's really interesting, and you know, as Simona says, and we have talked about this in previous episodes, the, the kind of island effect on species. It's 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 weird. It's definitely weird, but yeah. I tell you what, they've done this
2: to us. He's like, I tell you what we're going to do over millennia. We're going to change our tooth morphology ever so slightly just to throw people off. We're going to look at our bones 5,000 years from now. That's what's happened. (laughs) Sold.
1: Yeah, like they're not difficult enough really to deal with. Also, do we mention that they were most likely introduced Within animal food.
2: Oh, the island.
1: Yeah. Uh, so as people moved around, obviously, they, especially during in the Neolithic, people are settling. They've realized that they can uh, domesticate species. And to do that, they have to keep them fed. And voles, just like other rodents, love to tag along. Again, it's a very interesting thing about these very small mammalian species they are difficult to kind of pick up if you're kind of just generally looking at animal bones or even just excavating can be generally hard to pick up and retrieve they can be very frustrating for us but they they are kind of the harbingers of massive change sometimes whether that's people moving to different places people settling somewhere new creating a new community it's really interesting how kind of important their presence is at least with regards to what they may or may not indicate but they're also really annoying so it's hard
2: <laughs> shall we move on to an acuter a small mammal
1: yes very a cuter, small mammal i'm sorry potentially less annoying because again i think this is one that i've definitely never seen in my excavations no,
2: I think it's. I think it's a. It's more of a, a taciturn, silent presence to keep to himself. Uh, it's the hedgehog. It's the European hedgehogs. <laughs> so, like, I mean, it's an insectivore. Even though like, technically, it's a bit more of an omnivore. Loves dog food. Probably still did back in the day. And has some shared ancestry with shrews. To be fair, I can I can see that because their muzzle is sort of quite elongated quite pointy and you know if you picture a shrew or if you want to like look at something really cute you look up a pygmy shrew as one of the cutest thing you'll ever see so now i can see how they have some shared ancestry and now during the middle ages they were sometimes used for food and there there are actually instances of recipes that call for hedgehog uh, as you do another species of hedgehog across the world have been used for medicine and witchcraft Although, like, arguably, I mean, is it a very small mammal? To be fair, I would say it is, mainly, because like, sometimes you get, like, some older males that absolute units of a hedgehog. But all in all, I'd probably still put them in the very small mammal camp myself. And the, the, the humble hedgehog has been used by archaeologists to examine human mobility, given that it has actually been introduced elsewhere. Probably also inadvertently. So, for example, hedgehogs have been found on the islands of on the island of Gotland among Pitted Ware culture assemblages, which date back to the Middle Neolithic. ADNA work on the remains has shown that the, these hedgehogs actually originated from Sweden, so likely indicating human contact between Gotland and the mainland during the Neolithic. So, yet again, another species that whoops, and we we're, we're here now. Even though I can also picture someone going, this is cute, I'm taking it with me.
1: Well, yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It's, you know, most likely that they just kind of tagged along because, you know, that's what they do and they still do today. But I guess maybe there's like maybe a 0.2% chance someone was just like things cute. I mean we do it today too. People love to kind of just take random animals and try to make them pets. So who I knows? Think,
2: like people keep hedgehogs as pets. They do, yeah. Like I don't I don't know if you can in this country. I think you can. Is the the African pygmy shrew the one that is, I think, well not regularly because I think it's probably the most common of pets, but it's the one that you most often see being kept as a pet. As opposed to a full like European hedgehog, but you know people do find them cute. Quite a fair few like people like, in the UK do like tend to hedgehogs, and they will go like you can buy hedgehog specific food from pet shops, and you can you can feed the hedgehogs in your garden and encourage them. Also, because they're quite helpful, because they get rid of a lot of your pests, so a lot of the slugs and things. So not only they cause absolutely no damage to you and will never enter a nest in your home, but will also help you get rid of yeah the other, other pests that you may not want. It's a win-win, really, and they're super cute.
1: Yeah, and I feel like, and this is me kind of thinking uh, off the top of my head, I think there are some really cute hedgehog artifacts that you can look up and find. I think the Met, so the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, I believe they had some hedgehog-shaped like amulets and stuff from Egypt. This is something I vaguely remember from my undergraduate. So not only are they really interesting in this kind of osteological perspective, but they are just kind of a thing that you could find in artifacts, which is also extremely cute. So yeah, if you want to have a, a fun time, you can look it up. Oh, I just remembered it's <laughs> there is an artifact from the Middle East, I think, somewhere. It's a hedgehog and it's like on wheels. I remember that going around social media.
2: A hedgehog on wheels.
1: Yeah, it's like a, a little hedgehog, like carved out of something. It looks, I think it's like ivory or something, maybe. And it's like on this little like cart.
2: Oh, that's nice. And of course, let's not forget the hedgehogs that you find in some of the medieval bestiaries.
1: Yes, of course, they're priceless. So real accurate depictions of hedgehogs there.
2: But to be fair, like just medieval beast cherries in general, that they're a mood.
1: I think we have an episode that we'll do at some point in the near future about beast cherries. I, so.
2: I think like I should probably make a distinction between sort of medieval beast cherries and medieval maps. Because mm. I think like for both of those things you could do like a ten parter. <laughs> just the imagined zoo archaeology of what they thought a rabbit looked like. <laughs> And also, yeah, yeah, all the creatures of like medieval maps, especially the further you went away from sort of Western Europe, the more they'll just come up with the wildest stuff. They're like, oh, yeah, there's this creature here. Yeah, sure. Sure.
1: Anyway. You know the ones. As we think about the fanciful, I guess, we will take a break and we will come back to something a bit more grounded in reality with our case studies.
3: ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
1: And we are back with episode 55 of Archaeo Animals, the podcast all about zooarchaeology. And we are talking about very small mammals, mice, rats, and all other kinds of tiny little creatures. And it is the, you know, I don't have to do this every episode, blah 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 blah. the very, very exciting. everyone loves it. case studies Woo! So yeah, we actually have three case studies this time around. Just just so excited for for case studies, I guess. So we're going to start with house mice in the Levant. So just a quick refresher, if you don't know, the Levant refers to a historical region in Western Asia that borders the Eastern Mediterranean. It is also... Potentially the site from which the house mouse was able to expand globally So they may have kind of started around here And they began to travel with human groups as they moved and eventually settled elsewhere and thus were able to kind of spread throughout the world As such, Levantine sites are pretty ripe for zooarchaeology studies of the development of commensalism aka a relationship between two species in which one benefits from the other without harming or benefiting them. Uh, And this relationship was between, of course, house mice and humans. So the earliest commensal niche for house mice appears to have been about 15,000 years ago, give or take, when humans were settling into kind of more long-term settlements so they they weren't necessarily at the stage of agriculture but they were definitely settling down into one particular place but still kind of foraging so yeah prior to farming so research using both archaeological and contemporary data of house mice has shown that commensal mice ultimately have the competitive advantage over time as more and more human groups settled permanently. So basically mice that were taking advantage of humans as they settled. So going through their food, picking up some grains, getting all those benefits from being around humans without actually harming them, they had a competitive advantage against the mice that weren't necessarily doing that. They were kind of just chilling, doing their own thing somewhere else. However, this isn't just a straightforward thing. It has historically fluctuated as well. So certain sites that represented more mobile groups that traveled seasonably, so human groups that may, you know, have camped in one area for, you know, prime foraging season um, or, you know, because of a certain species that was around that they could hunt and then would camp elsewhere when that season was over. They had less commensal wild mice that would outcompete their more commensal brethren. So obviously, because they weren't permanently settled places, you didn't really need to have that relationship to kind of benefit from them. So yeah, it it, it showcases, long story short, it showcases that kind of relationship between permanent settlements and the kind of benefits that house mice would get by being nearby them. And obviously, as people began to settle more and more, we get to see more of that relationship build up and basically become kind of more prevalent amongst house mice. I mean, like, why go search for your own food where you can go raid these humans' grain store? I mean, it's kind of the lesson of agriculture as well. Not necessarily that we were raiding, I guess in some ways we were raiding Earth, but we were growing and, you know, Caring for Earth, so it's not that bad. I'm just digging myself into a hole similar to what I think mice and rats often do. You're burrowing. Burrowing. Yep.
2: <laughs> <laughs> for a second case study, we have the Pacific rat in Mangareva. The Mangareva is the largest of the Gandhi Islands located in French Polynesia. It's also an interesting site to examine human inductor change and transformation to the surrounding environment and ecosystem particularly due to predation, loss of habitat, competition and a number of introduced species. Unsurprisingly, one of the best species to utilise in this sort of investigation are the small rodents, or not-so-small rodents, I guess, like in this case the Pacific Rat, Ratus exulans, also known as the Polynesian Rat, the Little Rat or the kiore. Like the previously discussed house mouse, the Pacific Rat has developed a commensal relationship with humans, but it is also a great example of an introduced species as well, because why, why would you introduce a rat voluntarily? Let, let's face it. Um, well, the Pacific rat can't swim very far, me- meaning that its appearance on various islands is most likely due to human intervention, Interventional in, whether this is intentional or otherwise. I mean, most likely the latter. So, Within various sites in Mangareva, the Pacific rat remains have been used in stabilized isotope analysis to understand the changes in the food webs of in of the island. Now, Because the rat has such a limited range of mobility and is um, not terribly selective in what it eats, just a, a big mood in itself, it's, it makes a particularly good indicator of what is and isn't available for an omnivore species that will literally chomp on anything. This particular research indicated an overall trend of decreasing nitrogen values in the Pacific rat remains which has been attributed to a decline in seabird population, as there's very little evidence for fishing or hunting marine mammals, which in itself is likely due to human activity as well. So, again, another very good example of how you can use sort of very small mammals and like rodents in this particular case to not only track get an idea of what the environment was like what sort of species and food sources were available, you can also learn more about some of their interactions with humans, which also includes the very introduction of the species. So that's very yeah textbook example, really.
1: Yeah, and I I believe we've actually talked about the Pacific rat in the past. Might I, have done,
2: because I think- I think so. We've probably mentioned it because we have, if people are interested, way, way, way back in the depths <laughs> of our catalogue, we have an entire episode on introductions of alien species where the rat would as you presume as you presume feature prominently
1: (laughs) for sure and it's also another thing is that it's it's interesting to use utilize the the rat or you know again any of these kind of small mammals that kind of have this relationship with humans it's interesting how they are pretty important if we're also looking at say settlements that may have very little presence left. Obviously, a lot of these cases and a lot of these sites, there's a lot of other examples or evidence of human activity, whether that's human remains being there, bits of buildings or other kind of artifacts. But, you know, there could be places that there really isn't that kind of evidence. So there's some kind of utilization or potential for utilization there of if you have a high concentration of small rodents or things like that. Although should also point out, and this is something we'll get into in our final case study. It's it's not just humans that seem to accidentally collect rodents and small mammals. There are some other creatures that may, you know, accumulate, these kind of remains over time. And I guess that brings us to the deer mice and montane vole in Washington, USA. So this is a a different sort of a a case study. It's not an example of an archeological site or anything. It's actually a contemporary experiment to judge the effectiveness of using small mammal remains as indicators for environmental change. So, zooarchaeologists collected owl pellets from 1999 to 2001 from an equipment shed in Central Columbia County, Washington, USA. And just going to take a real quick sidebar. Simona, did you ever dissect owl pellets in school? No, no. Uh, in no, have you? Is is this an American thing? <laughs>
2: Yeah, cause just thinking like, no, in general, like I've never dissected an owl pellet, or least of all in school, because we never did anything as practical as
1: that. Yeah, we um, try. I, I, can't, I can't remember what grade it was, but yeah, we uh dissected owl pellets. We didn't do as much of the kind of stereotypical dissections that you see in like media, you know, the frog thing or things like that. We did dissect things. Most of them were kind of bits and pieces of animals I think we did well, we did a worm but we also did like a cow eye and like some other kind of organs but we also did an owl pellet to kind of look at the bones and stuff and I think that kind of helped me get into the place I am now when it comes to being a archaeologist. so thanks a lot to my middle school science teachers I guess but yeah anyway so, if you don't know, owls, when they <laughs> when they digest and let loose the the remains of their meal, they are in the form of owl pellets. If you break them apart, you can most often see bits and pieces of things that kind of went down the digestive tract. So, a lot of times, it can be bone. Well, not really down the digestive tract, but what they what's left over, kind of. So, yeah. Could be bones, it could be hair, bits of feathers, all the kind of fun stuff of things that they eat. Anyway, so archaeologists would collect these owl pellets and during the time that they're collecting all these owl pellets, the nearby habitat went through a, a very distinctive change. So it went from producing only wheat fields to producing both wheat and grass fields. So prior to this change, owl pellets indicated much more deer mice Peromiscus maniculatus. Thank you. Uh, Then montane vowel. Vowel. (laughs) Microtus montanus. Really creating new pronunciations, new realities. This is a real special episode. But yeah, so... We had more deer mice than mountain vole. However, after this environmental change, so after the habitat nearby began to produce both wheat and grass fields, there was actually much more vole than mice observed in the owl pellets. So these observations reflect similar changes in rodents that we see kind of more generally in archaeology. Due to change in agricultural practices and vegetation changes. However, you know, there's also the chance that there are changes in predation behavior and prey availability that's happening at the same time. So overall, the zoo archaeologists have concluded that when you are using rodents as indicators of habitat change, you should probably add a couple other lines of evidence to solidify these interpretations. So, you know, it's a pretty strong indication, but what helps more is to have, you know, maybe a couple other evidence to back that up, which I think goes for basically any kind of interpretation you provide as an archaeologist. And this is something
2: that has uh, unexpectedly also ruined my day in a way, because even (laughs) though I'm well aware of owl pellets, it just, you know, like, you know, when the light bulb goes on, and you, see, and you have your ditch, and at the bottom of your ditch, there's a collection of remains of various rodents. Well, is that indicative of settlement, or has an owl just ejected the rest of his meal into your ditch? Yeah. I mean, if it's not intrusive, then you know, it's still like a 2,000 year old owl pellet.
1: Yay. I mean, they're not, you know, they're all dried up and they're not that bad to go through. I actually really enjoyed going, like, dissecting them as a child.
2: Oh like I've heard it's not too it's not too gross. No. But just thinking how like yeah like maybe finding rodent remains in certain contexts is not necessarily indicative of settlement it's just something completely extraneous to the settlement and it's just an owl happens to have defecated near the settlement.
1: So yeah, that is I guess unless if do you have anything else to add anything else you'd like to to bring up about our our small microfauna?
2: I think my last sentence was a very fitting ending to this <laughs>
1: <laughs> A very distinguished ending to a very fascinating topic, which is curse those owl pellets. They are ruining our archaeological interpretations. <laughs> Thanks for hey, nothing, I mean, owls. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, these a lot of our archaeological sites are ultimately part of nature. And that means we have to deal with all of that entails, whether that's working in the worst weather conditions you could possibly imagine, or dealing with people just, and by people, of course, I mean burrowing animals and regurgitating animals, kind of just wrecking (laughs) all our stratigraphy as much as possible. We can't just have a clean cut, kind of completely in context site, can we? Too much to ask for. Too easy. But yeah, I guess that wraps things up for this episode. As always, we are on Twitter at ArchaeoAnimals. Let us know what you think of these episodes. Let us know if you have any episode requests. We've actually got some recently, so that's exciting. And we will try and do our best to work with those requests. And, you know, it's great to know that people are listening. And if you are listening, Feel free to leave us reviews and like our podcasts on the various podcasting apps. I don't know what the word is. Wherever you get your
2: podcasts, you so you'll find podcast. us.
1: Tell your friends about us. And yeah, I guess we will see you next time on Archeo Animals. Bye.
2: Bye. Thank you for listening to Archaeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. You can find us on Twitter at ArchaeoAnimals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers, and the archeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. <laughs>